Hello, and welcome to the premiere episode of a new podcast, Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. My name is Jack Llewellyn, and I am a lawyer, an author, an investigator, and I'm going to be your host for these podcasts. Um, let me give you an idea of where we're headed and the purpose behind the podcasts, and then we'll jump into something more substantive. But the podcast really is designed to be exactly what it says. Um, we're going to look over the course of time at uh, the Mexican cartels, how they operate, what they're doing in the United States, and we'll also look a lot at their history. Um, we'll look at a lot of conspiracy theories relating to uh, the interaction between uh, the cartels, the uh, American government, and uh, various issues like that. And then we're also going to spend some time, in, and our initial focus is going to be on the Camarena case. Why are we um, starting with the Camarena case? Well, selfishly, we're starting there because I have uh, spent the last 35 years working on that case in one way, shape, or another. I started in 1990 as a baby lawyer working on the defense case for Ruben Zuno Arce in his first trial in Los Angeles, like I say, in 1990, and I've worked on the case since then. And I have a book coming out on March 8th called Someone Had to Die, which is a true crime novel, which means it has a fictional narrative to tell a true story that deals with the Camarena case. So um, prior to the book coming out on March 8th, we're going to have two episodes. And by the way, I should have mentioned that the intention here is to have uh, episodes that are posted every Saturday. But prior to the book launch, we're going to have two episodes The one today is going to kind of talk about the basics of the Camarena case, just to make sure that everybody is is on the same page. And when we get into it today, we'll talk about this again, but what we're going to try to do is say, here's the stuff we know for sure is true, and then we can worry about the stuff that may or may not be true later on. The next week, we're going to talk a little bit about the traffickers, who are the main people involved give a little bit of an introduction into the investigation again so that we have a framework for where we go after the book is launched on March 8th and then we're going to have a series of podcasts that are really going to talk about the controversy the conspiracies the allegations most of which stem from Hector Brea's and the Amazon Prime series, uh, The Last Narc. And those include um, you know, allegations with respect to the CIA's involvement in the Camarena case. And I also include the assertion, um, direct or implied, that Camarena's boss, Jaime Kirkendall, was somehow involved in or uh, involved with the traffickers and or involved in Agent Camarena's uh, kidnapping. What's going to be nice in those uh, interv- or those podcasts after March 8th is we're going to have a series of interviews. 
Um, we're going to be able to talk to some former DEA agents. We're going to talk to some others who have investigated the case in one way, shape, or form. And uh, I expect that we are going to have interviews with one or more traffickers who had some degree of direct involvement with Caro Quintero and or uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. So um, those should be interesting and exciting. And uh, then once we get past kind of the Camarena case and, and that investigation will, as I say, move on to some other topics, um, which will include some discussions about Gary Webb, uh, Barry Seal, some uh, deeper dive into the CIA's involvement uh, with uh, drug trafficking away from the Guadalajara cartel, as it's become known. Um, so that was like a five-minute wind-up of where we're going. And now what I'd like to do uh, in, in the next 20 minutes or so, and what I'm going to try to do is keep all of these podcasts to about 25 to 30 minutes, unless we have a guest that we're really excited about, in which case they'll go a little bit longer. But I think that these are nice chunks, at least to start with, of time so that um, we can delve into one subject at a time and explore it sufficiently. So, um, what we want to do again today is to talk about the basics of the Camarena case. And as I mentioned earlier, what I would like to do is put aside all of the hypotheses, the uh, speculation, and, um, and certainly the conspiracies, and just talk about what do we know for sure. So with that in mind, what we know is the DEA, um, or its predecessor agencies, opened an office in Guadalajara, as well as other agents or other cities in Mexico in the late 1960s. I think the Guadalajara office opened in about 1969. And for the next 20 years or so until the Camarena case, the, uh, the DEA worked in conjunction with the Mexican authorities and, and basically with the permission of the Mexican authorities. So Camarena gets to Guadalajara in 1980 at a time when the relationship between the DEA and the Mexican authorities was not as bad as it could be, but it was also strained in part because of the belief that the cartel members and, and I'm going to go ahead and use the word cartel, as we'll talk about in later episodes. I think that's a bad um, word to use, or it's not an apt description. And I'm really opposed to using the term Guadalajara narcotics cartel. But again, that's what a lot of people uh, know it as. So if I slip into that on occasion, forgive me. But again, um, 
you know, so the idea is that that the DEA was working only with the permission of the Mexican authorities. And so at this time, the DEA was not permitted to really do investigations. They couldn't arrest people. They weren't uh, um, supposed to carry weapons. And uh, they really were at the mercy of the Mexican police. Now, let's talk about uh, Enrique Kiki Camarena. Uh, Kiki was born in Mexicali and then moved shortly after that to Calexico, which is on the uh, American side of the border, which is where he went to high school. Uh, He was in the Marines. He came back from the Marines and had some police involvement, joined the DEA, and then for our purposes... He um, was assigned to the Guadalajara office in 1980. And as many of you may know, you know foreign assignments are important if you're looking to uh, advance in, in the DEA. And so Kiki accepted an assignment to Guadalajara in 1980, moved there with his wife and his three sons. By all accounts... Uh, Camarena was a really good agent. Uh, I think it's fair to say that most people viewed him as a hard worker, uh, somebody who was able to seamlessly work with with informants, with the Mexican police, uh, and, and probably thought outside the box a little bit. What we know for sure is that Camarena had a very good success rate in finding, especially marijuana plantations that had been planted out in the desert. Uh, as as many of you may know, one of the things that the traffickers, principally Rafael Caro Quintero, but Uh, There were many, many others, as we will talk about later. But one of the things that they were able to do is to go out and grow marijuana in the desert in areas that previously were considered outside the zone, so to speak. And Camarena did a very, very good job of finding these plantations, and which resulted in some eradication efforts, some losses uh, of of the traffickers, and things of that nature. So that takes you kind of through 1980, Camarena arriving to about mid-1984. One of the things that Camarena had done a lot is uh, taken flights over... uh, undeveloped areas of of Mexico where some of these plantations were found and that becomes important later on uh, in the case. In November of 1984, a huge plantation operated by Rafael Caracantero near um, Rancho Buffalo, and it's become known as as the Buffalo Raid or the Buffalo Ranch, Um, and that's Buffalo, not Buffalo. 
but that was rated in November of 1984. And what's significant about Buffalo is it was about 2,500 acres. So it was a huge plantation. Um, It had an annual production, they said. Get this. So this is 1984, November of 1984. Annual production of $8 billion. A huge operation. Lots of employees. Lots of workers. And it was raided by the Mexican military. And the conventional story is that many of or much of the marijuana there was destroyed and that it had a significant impact on the uh, the cartel, the traffickers, and principally on Rafael Cairo Quintero. We'll fast forward from November of, of 84 to December 2nd of 1984. And on that date, four American missionaries, who were Jehovah's Witness missionaries, were killed in Guadalajara. The conventional story, which we will talk about in subsequent episodes, but the conventional story, which I think is completely wrong, is that these four missionaries inadvertently, you know, they were going door to door, uh, spreading their word, and they inadvertently went to the home of, or a home, of Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, who thought they were DEA and had them uh, picked up. They were picked up and uh, subsequently killed. So that puts you in at December 2, 1984. So again, we have the Buffalo Raid in November of 84, we have four missionaries from the United States who are murdered ostensibly because uh, Fonseca thought that they were DEA agents. About a month and a half later, on January 30th of 1985, there were two Americans, uh, last names of Walker and Radelat, who apparently were going out to dinner in Guadalajara and went to the La Langosta restaurant. And again, the conventional story is that they walked in on a cartel meeting. And as a result, the cartel members there, including or principally including Rafael Caracantero, thought that they were DEA agents and had them killed. So again, um, we have the Buffalo Raid, and then we have two actions, or two murders, six Americans, each of which, ostensibly because the traffickers thought that the, uh, the people were DEA agents. Then we get to February 7, 1985, which is the key date. 
And this is the day that Agent Camarena is kidnapped. Unfortunately, we don't have great records on, you know, exactly where Agent Camarena was that day. You know, these days we'd have, you know, cell phone records, we'd have GPS tracking, etc. Didn't exist then, so we have to kind of piece things together. What do we know for sure? We know for sure that at about 10 a.m. that morning, Camarena walked to a bank a couple blocks down the street. Okay. We know that at about 1.30 in the afternoon, Camarena walked across the street to the Camelot, which was a restaurant where uh, the DE agents often would meet with uh, informants. It's also a bar where they would hang out a lot. And as we'll note in a couple of moments, it's a place where the DE agents were allowed to park their car uh, or their cars because it was a little bit more convenient for them than going to the uh, main parking lot of the American consulate, which is where their, their office was. So at 1.30, Camarena leaves the DEA office at the consulate, walks across the street to the Camelot, and shortly thereafter, he and Jaime Kirkendall walk back to the consulate. And then we know that sometime after about 2 p.m., he announces that he's late to meet his wife for lunch. He leaves the consulate and apparently goes towards his truck, which is now parked outside the Camelot, in order to drive to the restaurant and meet his wife. There are numerous possible versions of the kidnapping. And we won't go into all of those now. One of the things that's interesting is that outside of alleged direct participants, there were virtually no witnesses. Uh, there was a chauffeur who may have seen something happen, but may not have. Um, so again, very little eyewitness testimony and and precious little that is not... Um, marred or uh, tainted because of the nature of the testimony and who, who it is. Now, what we think is that Camarena was going to his truck. And one of the things that's interesting is when investigators went to his truck the following day, they found that it was unlocked and his radio was in the front seat. Everybody says that that is highly unusual uh, and that he would not have left his truck unlocked uh, when he was at work that day. That'll become important later, um, but we won't get into the hypotheticals now. In, in all seriousness, the number of people who were involved in the kidnapping is someplace between two and about 12. 
the best version is that there were probably three or four people in a, a beige Atlantic car that pulled up and were involved in the the actual abduction of Agent Camarena. For all practical purposes, uh, I I think we know who at least three of the participants were. But for our purposes right now, let's say that we know with almost absolute certainty that two were involved. One was Rene Lopez Romero, who was a Mexican police officer who was working with the cartel. His name will become very important later on. And then there was uh, Sammy Ramirez, also known as El Sammy, who was uh, kind of the right-hand man for Carl and or Fonseca. Uh, And he had been an MFJP officer, Mexican Federal Judicial Police officer, uh, previously. So we know that, again, Camarena uh, left at about 2.15, never showed up to meet his wife. She just assumed that he had gotten busy. Um, and nobody really knew that he was missing until the next morning when Mrs. Camarena realized he had not come home. She called Jaime Kirkendall, and uh, the investigation started. When Cameron is picked up, he is taken to a home in a residential section in the western part of Guadalajara. Um, at, the residence is located at 881 Lope de Vega, often just referred to as Lope de Vega. Um, it was a home that was owned by Carol Quintero. It had previously been owned by a person by the name of Ruben Zuno Arce, who was a fairly well politically connected individual, um, and his name will become important later on as well. The The house at Lope de Vega had a main house and then had what we'll refer to as a guest house or a servant's quarters in the back, and Camarena was taken to those quarters where for the next 36 hours or so he was interrogated, beaten, tortured, uh, etc. What's interesting about the interrogation, and um, I've had the the great displeasure of listening to the recordings of the interrogation as well as reading the transcripts uh, numerous times. But what's interesting is the interrogation was recorded. It was taped. And um, we will talk later about those tapes, how they came to be, how many there are, if there are any missing, all of those things later. But let's just say for the moment they were taped and we've been able to listen to them and analyze them. And from that interrogation and those tapes, We know that there were at least two interrogators, probably at least three, and maybe as many as four or five. There was testimony from DEA agents that at least one of the interrogators was Carl Quintero himself. We'll discuss later the degree to which... um, 
Carl participated in the interrogations, that is, how long he was there, um, what questions he asked, and those sorts of things. Um, I, I will say, when you listen to the tapes, they are very difficult to understand. People talk over each other. People talk fast. It becomes very, very difficult. And so there become real questions as to who was talking when, um, but the topics, the subjects are relatively clear. And again, we will talk about that in great detail in a subsequent episode. There was one other um, person who was kidnapped at the same time or about the same time as Agent Camarena. Uh, Captain Alfredo Zavala Avalar had worked with the DEA agents and he was a pilot for the agricultural department in Mexico. And he often would fly Cameron and others out to look at the plantations and to um, assist in other ways in, in their investigations. He was kidnapped at the airport um, after Cameron was, was picked up, um, but on the same day, as Cameron was picked up. And, and again, that'll become very important later. But I can say with great certainty that Zavala was picked up, kidnapped the same day that Cameron was on December 7th. Okay. Um, so he was at the airport. He was picked up and um, apparently was also taken to Lope de Vega, though there is um, less direct evidence of that. Okay. Um, again, Cameron endured at least 36 hours of interrogation and torture, some of which really was brutal. If you want to have your stomach turned, you can uh, look at the the autopsy reports which go into great detail. We know that Camarena some, you know, ended up dying, whether that was at Lope de Vega or someplace else, we're not exactly sure. Officially, he's listed as dying on February 9th. Um, we will note that the, there have been, there were three autopsies done, all of which are slightly different. The bodies were badly decomposed, so it's difficult to know. But we think that they were were actually killed on or died on February 9th. They were buried likely at Primavera Park, which is just outside of Guadalajara, though they may have been moved once or twice. And then on... Um, what day was it? March 5th? Forgive me if the, the date is wrong, but in, in March of 85, the bodies were found at a ranch called Bravo Ranch under really dubious circumstances. We'll talk about those um, later. But this was at a time when the U.S. was putting great pressure on Mexico. You may know that um, the Customs Department basically shut down the border and was inspecting every car coming from Mexico to the United States. So there was great pressure. There ended up being a an alleged shootout at the Bravo Ranch. 
And as part of the follow-up to that shootout, the bodies of Agent Cambrena and Captain Zavala were found. So that gives you a real quick, that was like 25 minutes of, here's what we know about the Cambrena case. A couple of things um, before I conclude this this episode. Number one is I have a website. It's Jack Llewellyn. It's L-U-E-L-L-E-N dot com. Not an original uh, original uh, name for my website. But one of the things that's important on there is I have documents relating to the case. And um, we're adding more every day. I believe that the documents that are in are listed on the website or accessible through the website are the most comprehensive set of Camarena documents that exists anywhere outside of the DEA. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, uh, contact information for me can be found on that website. And I would love to hear from from anyone who's interested, has different thoughts, etc. Again, know that we're going to get into more of the details and some of the more controversial elements uh, going forward. And then I just want to remind you, next week um, should post on March 5th, but we're going to talk about the traffickers. So we'll talk about... Um, Carl Quintero, Fonseca, uh, Felix Gallardo. We're also going to talk about Juan Ramon Marabayasteros and, and some of the other traffickers. And then we're going to talk really um, in general about the investigation into the Cambrina uh, murder. And we will touch on the American trials, the three American trials that were conducted and, uh, relating to the case. And then that'll set us up, posture us perfectly for the release of the book and really talking about uh, the major controversies. We'll look at um, a lot of the the allegations and uh, conspiracies involved in the case, and we'll start to analyze and pick apart those allegations uh, in subsequent episodes. So that'll conclude today's episode. I thank you for listening and hope to, uh, to have you join in the next episode.